Hey, Cassie, how you doing? I'll have the usual. Got it. Thanks so much. Hi, my name's Chip Ingram, and we're going to start a journey together. It's called True Spirituality, the small group series. And I'm here very purposefully. Coffee shops are where I like to hang out. Because it's one thing to read this book privately and ask God to help you become a Romans 12 Christian. And I know you're going to hear some great teaching on the weekend. But here's the thing. Life change happens in community. It happens when you get together with a group of people and you share your heart and you love one another. And you begin to talk about what's really going on inside. You know, I've had probably the best times of my entire life over a cup of coffee with my wife or one of my kids. Or I've actually met in small groups right in a place like this. We're going to go on a journey together, not to learn more in your head, but to get your heart and your mind around not the principles of Romans 12, but a picture that will transform your life. You know that picture we talked about? Uh, that picture that is taking those principles to reality? Well, that picture, in essence, really isn't a picture at all. It's a person. It's the person of Jesus. True spirituality is loving God and loving people 24-7. That's what this journey is about. It's not just studying Romans chapter 12. It's following, knowing, falling in love with Jesus and following Him in a powerful way. So grab those study guides, a cup of coffee, and let's roll. morning. Uh, the, the little video you just saw is a kind of an introduction to a series we're going to start. It, we're not doing the book as he talked about and we're not doing it Sunday mornings uh, but we're doing in uh, next month we're going to uh, start with a video series on that he just talked about and uh, as you all know we've had a real hard time this past year with all the restrictions to have our discipleship groups and our you know, our in-home, out-there kind of uh, fellowship and growing together kind of stuff to happen. So uh, our CE director for this year has come up with this idea that we're going to do um, discipleship groups at church. So we're going to do Tuesday nights, uh, 12 weeks on Romans chapter 12, and uh, invite you to come here to the church. We'll watch the video together. And then we have enough room here downstairs and upstairs to make big enough circles of our chairs so we can discuss what we've watched and what we've read in God's Word and pray together uh, with the proper distancing and everything. So we're going to give that a shot. We, don't, we just kind of finalized the plans uh, Friday so we don't have it in your bulletin or nothing, but the announcements will come out and be around. And uh, we trust that you'll uh, find that something you could engage with. Um, I, I think Sheila, your your words were were very wise this morning. Uh, as we as you were singing and watching the slides do funny things, uh, we've already noticed that the live stream is is dead this morning, and the screens are acting up, and my remotes for my slides for the sermon are are not working. So I was in the back, Sheila, and I was I was kind of frustrated, and I thought about your words, and I thought, okay, I need to pray because this is a real challenge. Can I worship? Can I worship anyways? Can I worship despite these difficulties? And uh, I, 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 that was a challenge to me and uh, probably a challenge to all of us. 
Um, I want to just go to the next slide. Uh, Barrett's going to try to think about what I'm talking and keep the slides going. And if, uh, if it makes you all laugh, then that's probably better than, than what I'm talking about. We need a sense of humor this morning. But as I mentioned last week, uh, uh, Colleen and I, our daughter Laurel is, li- is in Toronto. She go- her church is the Mercy City Church that you see pictured there. And because of their severe lockdowns, they're, they're really in danger of having to close their doors. And she asked if, if I could uh, ask you to give towards helping them stay open. Um, the website's there, mercycitychurch.com slash support. You can donate right there if you go there. Uh, or you can put it your offering in a, in a box that we have at the back table uh, entitled Mercy City. Again, that's a, that's a love offering above and beyond your regular offerings here um, just to help out that, that church there. It's a free church uh, there in, the, in the, um, downtown Toronto. Um, so yeah, just if that's something God puts on your heart, you can support them and uh, maybe, maybe not just with money but with prayers and uh, stuff as well. So... We're going to move uh, into the first book, uh, Galatians, some key passages that I've set up there for you. And um, we looked at Luke-Acts. Uh, we'll come later on and mention when, when we think that, that they were written in terms of the chronology. But Luke-Acts gives us the timeline, the, the framework, the background story for where all these other parts of the New Testament were written. And so we're coming to Galatians. Uh, it's, if you are following on our webpage uh, with uh, the, the greatest story where I kind of tell you the whole background story to where these books fit into the story, uh, you'll find that at uh, chapter 6 and 7 and 8 would be kind of the area we're in now. And, uh, and so you can take a look at that. But uh, before, before we get into Galatians, I want to tell you about something that really made me think about Galatians the last couple of months. Uh, I've always been fascinated by India. I don't, I don't know if it would be top of my list of places I'd go visit if I was going to uh, do that kind of travel. But I love uh, watching uh, videos or reading books of people who've traveled in India and, of course, I like the ones that traveled on motorcycles the best, but, but anything, it's a fascinating country. And one of the things that fascinates me about India is that it, there are very few places on this earth that have a, a clear and continuous cultural, cultural and religious timeline without interruption going all the way back. Now, if you ask someone who's a practicing Hindu... In India, they'll tell you that Hinduism is eternal. It never started and it will never end. But if you go into the archaeology in the ancient ruins in the jungles where you see temples that no one even remembers who built them or, or how they were made, um, you, the, the archaeology, the records that we have, uh, realistically, Hinduism probably started, many believe, about 7,000 years ago. And it's been unbroken in that area of the world, a continuous progression, development of a religious tradition going back that far. Now, I haven't done any research on this, but the only other belief system that goes back that far that I know of is the Judeo-Christian 
belief system. And so um, we go, we can trace, you know, historically, archaeologically, in literature, all the way back to Abraham, and then uh, through Moses' writings before to creation. Um, but basically, what that means is this: when the Bible story of Naaman dipping himself seven times in the Jordan River was actually happening in real time. At exactly the same time, on exactly the same day, people were washing themselves in the Ganges because they believed it would take away their sins and heal their bodies. It's that kind of tradition. It has that kind of power. Now, some of you might remember uh, Vinod John. A number of years ago, he... uh, he came to our church. Uh, there's a picture there somewhere of a, of a book and a couple. Uh, maybe you can find it. <laughs> maybe not. We'll see. Um, but he, Vinod and Evelyn came here to speak with us for a weekend at one point. Uh, he grew up in India as a Christian. Uh, they, they had an arranged marriage according to Indian traditions. Uh, they're now starting and planting a church, an Indian church among immigrants uh, in Edmonton. And uh, just, just recently this year, uh, he published his, his doctoral dissertation in this book, Believing Without Belonging. And the research that he did was in the uh, northern part of India, along the Ganges River. And here's how he, w- he first told me the story before the book was published, before he finished his dissertation, before he became a doctor, Vinod John. But, uh, but he, he said this way. He said, if, if, if you, he said to me, so if I went to northern India and looked and lived there for a week, for a month, for a year, for five years, outside of the outcasts, the people that aren't in the caste system, he said, you would probably never see a church. Now that's interesting because there's been Christian missionaries in northern India since the 1700s. And their stories, as you read them, as he lays them out in the book, are always the same. Many people hear about Jesus and read the stories and they're attracted to him. And they, they, they draw in and they, they profess a belief in Jesus Christ. And, they, and they're, they're in the discipleship process. Uh, and then at some point along the line, they just stop. And then they kind of fade back into the Hindu culture around them. And this pattern's been going on since the 1700s. The, uh, the outcasts, the people out of the caste system, have come to... to Jesus Christ in big numbers and kind of what happens there is they don't have a caste they don't belong in any of the social structures of their society and so when they join the church they kind of join the European caste and, and gain an identity a cultural identity through, through dressing and acting and talking like a Euro- European Christians and uh, so, so they do that but the, 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 the others just have have never been successful. Now, being an Indian himself and a Christian himself, Vinod, um, in, his, in his studies on mis- mission history and missiology, uh, uh, decided to go there and do some research. And he spent a number of years off and on uh, in the region. It's not where he's from, but he got to know some people. And, 
and went in there and he details in this book how he discovered now it's there's other people that have written about it and kind of noticed in the Indian context, but he's put it into research, into uh, documentation, that he estimates that there's probably tens of thousands of devotees of Jesus Christ among the Hindu castes in northern India. But if a European person of European descent like me goes there, he says, you, you, you just won't see them. If you ask them on a census, as happens in every country, religious, uh, the, the government wants to know how many people belong to different groups. What religion are you? Every one of them, or almost every one of them will say, I'm Hindu. They'll never say I'm Christian. But if you do what Vinod did, and he got to know in his research about 400 personally of these people, and he asked them, well, well do you believe in Jesus Christ? Yes. I'm devoted to him. Do you worship other gods? Because most Hindus worship many gods. They said, oh no, those gods are worthless. We pray to them and we never get healed. We never have anything. we absolutely devoted only to Jesus. Uh, do you go to a church? Well, no. Uh, but if you are like Vinod and understand the languages, you can go to an ashram that only reads the Bible and only prays to Jesus, and only sings songs that come out of the Bible. Now to our Western eyes, with our language, we would walk right past and just see another Hindu-Indian ashram. And if, if you get to know these people like he did, you'll find that, that you can go in their house, and they have a little shrine to Jesus that looks like their neighbor's shrine to whatever God they're devoted to. And every day after work, they gather with their other fellow devotees to Jesus Christ in that home and they read the Bible and they've written many songs that they sing together with traditional instruments. And you ask them, well, how do you know about Jesus? And they'll, he said they'll often go to the top shelf, the highest shelf in the house, and they'll take a book wrapped in expensive velvet and they'll open it up and here it's the Hindu Bible and it's tattered and torn because it's been read through so many times. It kind of makes it kind of makes us pause those of us who've been in the in the European traditional Christian church all our lives. I know not all of you are like that. You're looking at us and thinking we look pretty weird by the things we do and the way we do them if you don't weren't didn't grow up among us. But we look at that and as has happened so many times the European missionaries, like by European I mean Canadian, American, English-speaking or German or Lutheran or Anglican or Baptist, and they come home, much money's been spent, much effort to spread the gospel. They come back and say, I uh, don't no, spend my whole life there, but no church. But God, through the Holy Spirit, I believe, as Vinod shows us, is building an Indian church in India, an ethnically, culturally Indian church that has their own ways of approaching God, their own ways that make sense in their culture of worshiping and of growing together and of spreading the news, often under persecution. To our eyes, 
they look like Hindus, the same as the next person. But in the Hindu culture, it's very obvious. You don't bring the offerings to the family gods anymore. And they're persecuted. But they remain devoted to Jesus. Now, that's a long story. And I thought it was worth telling this morning as we look at Galatians. Because as I was reading this book, um, I was thinking about Galatians all the time. I was thinking, that sounds like what's being addressed in Galatians. So now when we get to Galatians in our, in our book-by-book series in the Bible, I thought I, I have to tell that story. Because I believe the Apostle Paul in Galatians is writing to a situation almost exactly the same. And sometimes when we look at a, an example, a case study that's not our own lives, we can see it clearly. And then later on we can apply that and think, uh, are we in the same kind of situation? But it's harder to see because it's our situation. So if we look at the context for Galatians, what we find is that Paul has just returned from his first missionary journey. So he's gone on a trip uh, together with, uh, with Barnabas, and they've gone up into the area that, it, that, that we refer to as Asia Minor. Now it's Turkey. And they, they've started a few churches dotted up around that area among the Gentile people. Um, at that point in time, I don't have percentages, but the vast majority of Christians, people in the Church of Jesus Christ, were in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, as far as Antioch and, uh, and in that area. And they were all culturally Jews. Now, yeah, we have the story of Cornelius and his family, and everyone celebrates when some of these Gentiles became Christians, but... They also lived in Palestine, and to get along in that culture, they kind of had to more or less uh, follow the, the norms of the location in which they were living. And so, Paul has gone into these places that where, where the, the people who, who devote themselves to Jesus Christ are not culturally Jewish. Now, the, the, the people in the church in Jerusalem and the surrounding area... They, if, if you and I went there, if we could take a time machine back, it would be just like if we went to northern India. We would only see Jewish people. They talk the same, they dress the same, they observe the same holy days, they eat the same foods and don't eat the same other foods, and they, and they go to the temples and they go to the synagogues, and even when they don't go to the synagogues, they kind of do exactly the same thing, and, and they would all look the same. In fact, uh, it was, it was uh, at least 70 years uh, till, the, till the Romans destroyed Jerusalem before the, the Greek and Roman people could see Christians as different from Jewish. They, they just all looked the same thing. They couldn't t- distinguish a difference. Now, if you were in Jerusalem, there was a huge difference within the culture. Because the people who had said, Jesus is my Lord, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies and the sacrifices, they stopped bringing sacrifices to the temple. Now within the Jewish culture, that was a massive difference. That was a difference loud enough and big enough and strong enough to cause the Jewish people who were still bringing sacrifices to the temple to want to kill the ones who weren't. They thought of it as a capital offense. It was so different. 
So within the culture, it was huge. People looking at them from the outside couldn't see the difference. It looked minor. So when Paul goes to Turkey, Asia Minor, and he starts churches among the Gentile believers, he doesn't tell them to become Jews. He tells them to become devoted to Jesus Christ. And that's what they did. But some people back in Jerusalem heard about it. Now Paul's back in Antioch, his home base. He's taken a year off before he starts his second journey, his second missionary endeavor. And uh, during that year when Paul's in Antioch again, people from the church in Jerusalem go up to these churches he started. And yeah, they celebrate that people have come to faith in Jesus Christ. But they tell them, but Paul didn't tell you everything. To to just continue this journey of faith, you need to start talking like us and having your children circumcised like us. And you have to stop eating pork and you have to observe the Passover and you have to do all these things. Paul didn't tell you the whole thing. Now this infuriates Paul because he knows that faith in Jesus Christ is not a cultural thing. So he writes Galatians to combat this false teaching. And he's absolutely uh, emphatic in his, in, his, uh, in his teaching. Now, if we could have the slide uh, that says, um, in Galatians, God asks. Yeah. Can you separate culture from true Christian faith? Can you separate culture from true Christian faith? So let's, let's dive in. Galatians can very easily be divided into three sections, three different topics that Paul addresses. Chapter 1 and 2 are a summary of the gospel as he's preached it, as he teaches it. As Peter and James have accepted it, Uh, They're in agreement. These other people are not from the the core of the leadership. Uh, They're they're a different party. But um, he summarizes the gospel of the crucified Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And he defends his authority to teach this gospel. And he gives the message that these people who've come in and telling you that it's Jesus plus the law, he says they're betraying the gospel. Just read you a little bit to get get a flavor. You can read the whole two chapters on your own time. But from Galatians chapter 2, verse 19. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me, so I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements, so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live this new So I live in this new earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. If it's Jesus plus the law, then you don't need Jesus. 
If it's Jesus plus keeping the right rules, then you don't need Jesus. Because he died to fulfill those things and uh, they were never part of the, the, the path anyways. The, the, the argument that Paul makes, uh, and we only touch on it here in the time we have, but he talks a lot about promise. Uh, so let's, I'm going to read the next section. Um, in Galatians 3 to 4, uh, Paul moves from just explaining the gospel directly to talking about how faith in Christ creates something new. A new multi-ethnic family. A new thing that didn't exist on earth before the Holy Spirit came. You remember, I don't have the slide for it, but you remember the last uh, couple of Sundays I've used, I used this picture of a, of a little golden dot on the earth and a lightning bolt from heaven. Some of you who are here will remember that. If not, you can go back and review the sermons on our webpage. But, but the idea here is that that this is the culture of heaven among the body of Jesus on earth. So here's what he says about this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 and following. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. All who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs. And God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Now when we think about that phrase uh, in verse 27, like putting on new clothes in this context, because he's talking about this this controversy. Some people are saying, if you're going to develop in your Christian walk, you have to become Jewish in your cultural practice. And Paul's arguing against that. He says, like putting on new clothes. I think he's thinking about like a cultural uniform. Like we even know that in our culture, right? You see some people on the street corner and based on how they're dressed, you can often have a pretty good idea of what little subculture they belong to. Uh, They've got certain kind of wide-brimmed hats and bandanas. You know, maybe they're cowboys. They got leather jackets and studs on their boots. Maybe they're bikers. You know, we, we can recognize people by their clothes. And so he's saying, uh, when we put on Christ, it's like putting on new clothes. You're putting on a new identity, one that comes from heaven, not one that comes from earth. And then he talks about promise. I just read one verse, but this is a big part of his argument. The idea that when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob put their faith in the promise of God, they became God's people. And when God later on gave the law, the law didn't add to that. The law was put there to convince us that we can't get to God on our own energies by being holy enough, by following the rules closely enough. So even the people through Moses and all the way through who had the law, they too became God's people, not by keeping the law, but by believing the promise, by putting their faith in the promise. And the promise was the fulfillment of the law, which was Jesus Christ. And then he's saying, so just like those people today, after Jesus Christ has fulfilled the promise, we too put our faith in Jesus Christ, and we're saved the same way Abraham was, by putting our faith in what God has promised through Jesus Christ. Now, In their case, in the Old Testament, 
They were looking forward to something that had not yet been fulfilled, had not yet been done. And this is much better now because now we actually have Jesus Christ. He did live. He was the God-man who lived perfectly sinlessly and took his sins upon himself on the cross and had victory over sin and death in the resurrection and ascended into heaven to be at God's right hand, our King and our Lord, that we can say we follow him and he sends his Holy Spirit, the real actual presence of God among God's people, to empower them to live according to the culture of heaven. Put on those clothes. Now to add the law to that, Paul says, well, he doesn't give them nice names in Galatians. He's he's quite upset about that. There's no point in Jesus coming if that's how it works. And then in the last chapters, 5 and 6, He outlines how people are transformed by the Spirit. How does this new thing work? Uh, The law was good. He doesn't reject the law. He doesn't say that if you are culturally, culturally Jewish, you should stop living that way. That's your culture. That's your habits. Do it. That, he doesn't condemn that. He says, don't put that on other people. Because it's not about your culture on earth. It's about whether you're Jew or Gentile developing the culture of heaven among you as God's people. And that doesn't matter, as we'll read in a moment. Um, so let's, let's, take, let's get a taste of that. Um, Galatians 5, 16. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. When you follow the desires of the sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, pleasure, Lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, fullness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to the cross and crucified them there. So when he says these fruits of the Spirit, what he's saying is, You know, he says, there's no law against these things. The law doesn't address these things. But these are the clothes of the kingdom. These are the clothes that identify you as someone who belongs to Jesus. It doesn't matter if you, if you wear a, a shawl, you know, and long ringlets on your temples like a Jew, 
Or if you, if you wear a sari with sandals and long hair up in a turbine, like a Hindu, or a, a polka dot shirt and running shoes, like, a, like an old preacher trying to look contemporary. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you eat pork or beef. By the Holy Spirit, put on love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And you can be identified as someone who is devoted to Jesus Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit. In Galatians, God is asking us, can you separate culture from true Christian faith? The key verse, I believe the verse that sums up the entire message of Galatians is Galatians 5 verse 6. So if you're only just taking one note, write that one down. Galatians 5 verse 6. For when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there is no benefit in being circumcised or being uncircumcised. What is important is faith expressing itself in love. And, I mean, we can read that word because we're not from the culture that he's reading, writing to, and it can kind of go over our heads. But just think about that for a minute, what he's saying. He's comparing two cultures. There's no benefit in being Jewish and doing all the things that Jewish people do. And there's no benefit or harm in being Gentile. And blending into that culture. Now, he just talked about the fruit of the Spirit and stuff. Like, like It's not like you, you can do whatever you want. The only thing that matters, what is important, is faith. And that's a word that includes everything we've just talked about and more. Genesis to Revelation. Faith. Expressing itself. Faith becoming real in our actions, in our hands and feet, in love. Now, doesn't that sound exactly what Jesus said when he summed up the law and the prophets? Can anyone quote it? How did Jesus sum up the law and the prophets? Yeah, faith expressed through love. Same thing. Now, he explains it a little bit more, and I'm going to read this one from the message paraphrase so we can kind of get jarred out of our normal thinking with words we don't, haven't read over and over again. Galatians 6, verse 14 and 15. For my part, I am going to boast about nothing but the cross, our Master Jesus, the cross of our Master Jesus Christ, Because of that cross, I have been crucified in relation to the world, set free from the stifling atmosphere of pleasing others and fitting into the little patterns that they dictate. Can't you see the central issue in all of this? It's not what you and I do, submit to circumcision or reject circumcision. It's what God is doing, and he is creating something totally new. 
a free life. In Galatians, God asks us, can you separate culture from true Christianity? What does this have to do with us? With you and me? I'm not sure of this. I've, I, I've struggled with how to conclude this. The reason is because we're all in the middle of it. What I mean by that is I believe, and 50 years from now you might look back at this message if anyone ever remembers it and say, you were completely wrong, and I'll accept that. Because it's hard to see stuff when you're in the middle of it. But I believe we're in the middle of a massive cultural change. We're in the middle of, of something on the level of the Reformation in the late Middle Ages, uh, something... Something like that is going on in the world right now. Uh, Everything we recognize, all the patterns we know, are going to be different. Uh, In 2012, I think it was, uh, George Barna, the Barna Research Group, did a survey of something they were noticing. Now, I don't know if any of you know, maybe just us pastors pay attention to such stuff. But, but I'll, I'll just give a, sh- a brief explanation. Barna is a guy, the Barna Group is a company that does research. So for example, if you have a company and you want to launch a new product, you would hire Barna to do the marketing research to find out who you should market to, what kind of advertisements would work, how you should package it, uh, that kind of thing. You hire them and they do the research and come back to you with the information. Or if you're a political party, you might har- hire the Barna Group to go out and do the Do the research to find out what kind of messaging is going to come across uh, to the voters you're interested in attracting to your party and that kind of thing. That's what they do. That's how how the Barna Group makes its its living. But George Barna himself is a Christian. And so he's used his resources in this company that he owns to keep track of Christian trends in North America for the last uh, probably 30 or 40 decades. Uh, he's, he's, He's kept an... Kept, he always does research and, and brings up-to-date uh, understandings of what's happening in our culture in, re- in regards to religion in general, but specifically Christianity, the Christian church. In 2012, he came out with a, 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 an article, a book, a publishing of his research, and he coined a term that still doesn't show up on, uh, on your uh, Microsoft Word, you know, when I put this term in my notes here, it's a, it's a misspelling. But, so it hasn't gained wide, wide appeal for good reason, I guess. But uh, the word is de-churched. He was discovering, he was seeing the trends, and then he said, okay, I've got to study this trend because it's showing up in my research. And he did an intensive study in North America, Canada, and U.S. on this phenomena. And here's what he found out. People who call themselves Christian and actually in their behaviors do stuff that Christians do and in their beliefs believe things that Christians believe but never go to church make up in 2012 10% of the population. And he said his research found that it's the fastest growing religious group in North America. The fastest growing religious group in North America is the de-churched. 
people who still believe what we believe, people who still read their Bibles and pray, but they don't go to church. Now that's a pretty big shift because the people who believe what we believe is only, you know, depending on which survey you look at, probably 30, 35% or even 20% of the population. And he found that 10% in 2012 fit this category of de-churched and it was growing faster than any denomination, any church group. People were leaving the church but not leaving their faith. Faster than people were joining the church and taking up the faith. Now that's, that's a sobering insight for pastors and church leaders and church goers. But it's probably not surprising to you. If I ask the question, how many of you know someone who fits that category? I'd be surprised if you didn't all put up your hand. I'd be really surprised. I expect every one of you knows several people, maybe five, maybe six, maybe 20 Who would claim if you asked them outright, are you a Christian? Yes. And you ask them about their beliefs. You know, because they haven't been to church for years, their beliefs might be a little bit shady and and fuzzy on the edges. But but yeah, they, they believe. They've put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They haven't been to church for years. Or maybe they've never been to church. We all know. I mean, maybe some of you don't. I was going to say if the live stream was working that maybe some of you on the live stream are these people. Welcome. Let me ask you another question. Have you ever thought of joining them? I'm not going to ask you to put up your hands, but I'll put up my hand. I've thought about it. I've thought about joining them. I'm not going to give up on Jesus. I'm not going to stop reading my Bible. I'm not going to stop studying the scriptures and seeking to to produce those fruits of the Spirit in my life. But I've sometimes wondered, is is it really, does all this stuff we do really get me anywhere on that journey? That godliness I desire so deeply? Maybe I shouldn't admit that in front of you. You might fire me. Ed Stetzer is a a speaker I've heard a few times. He's the editor of Christianity Today, which is the the foremost uh, Christian news magazine in Canada. Uh, His research says that uh, he works with Pew Research, which only does research uh, within the church context. But his research shows that 24.5% of Americans now say that their primary form of spiritual nourishment does not come from a Sunday morning service. It comes from small groups of less than 20 people. Now, many of those people in that survey are people who go to church on Sundays, and many of them are people who don't go to church on Sundays. But I could tell you stories. I believe God is doing something new. I don't know what it is, but things are changing in our culture. And uh, that's why I asked the question. That's why Galatians is so, so important to us right now. 
can I identify people without the cultural trappings of the box that is evangelical Christianity? I don't fit in there. Because that's what Paul was challenging the church of his day, which was probably 98% Jewish. Can you recognize those people in those churches that just started up as Christian, even though they don't do the things you do and talk the way you talk and meet the way you meet and sing the songs you sing? Are you going to reject them? Are you going to force them to become just like you? And his assessment of that was, if you do that, that's not the gospel I'm preaching because that's faith in Christ plus the behaviors I like. That's not the gospel. If there's a plus, it's not Jesus Christ. It's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's something else. I could tell you stories. Some of you have heard me tell some of these stories before, so bear with me. Uh, I know of a guy. I don't know him, but I heard him speak. A missionary from Brazil. Career missionary. Uh, successful campus ministry, revivals in Brazilian university campuses. Uh, For health reasons, returned to the United States. Uh, Family members sick and had to come home. Uh, But the calling to be a missionary was still God's call in his life. And so he, he moved to town. He got a job at his brother's car dealership. And he joined the local church and uh, became a member. It wasn't long and he was talking to a neighbor down the street. And in their conversation as they got to know one another, he found out that his neighbor was actually interested in Jesus Christ and had actually bought a Bible and was reading it from time to time. And so, uh, so as their relationship grew and developed, he invited his new friend, his neighbor down the street, to come to church with him. And his neighbor said, without hesitation, there's no way I'll ever do that. Why? Why why wouldn't you? Well, you have two reasons. One reason is he'd tried it before and he felt judged. That wasn't the main reason. The main reason was this. In the schedule of his life, the only time he could get to, he was guaranteed that he and his father and his brothers and some of their other friends wouldn't be working and they could play a game of golf together was Sunday morning. The only time. He said, there's no way I'm giving that up. It's just not going to happen. And so this man went to his pastor and said, I just want you to know we've joined the church, we're committed to this church, but you won't be seeing me on Sunday mornings much anymore. We'll still come to the midweek and you know, get involved in leadership. Whatever you want us to do, we're still committed to this church, but we won't be there on Sunday mornings. And he went golfing with his friend down the, down the road uh, every Sunday morning. They talked about everything, but sometimes they talked about God and the Bible and Jesus Christ. A year and a half later, he was having uh, every, I don't know which week, night of the week, but every, every week was having a, a get-together with his neighbor down the road, the other neighbor, his neighbor's brother, and they were meeting uh, around the barbecue in the backyard and opening the Bible and praying together and discipling one another. And you know what? His pastor wouldn't let them register their home group as one of the church discipleship groups because he and his wife weren't coming to church on Sunday morning. He couldn't do it. He couldn't get out of the box 
and say, yeah, those people are Christians seeking the Lord because they're not doing the things I think Christians do. I know of a, another man. He was, in, he was in the church I was pastoring. He said, Pastor, I've been, I've been listening to your sermons. I've been hearing what you, you're saying. And my wife and I have decided that in order to do what you've been saying, we're going to stop coming to church. Instead, we're going to invite our neighbors over. Several months later, I went to visit them, and uh, my friend had, on a Monday morning before work, he had 15 men in his machine shed on his farm, sitting on swather wheels and bales and here and there, and he had bought a projector, and he was projecting on the white opening garage door of his machine shop. He had hot coffee on, and they were watching James Dobson's parenting videos. Now, to my knowledge, none of those men have ever darkened the door of a church. But some of them, I know, have decided that to be a good father and a good husband, they need to look at God's Word. And some of their children, though they too have never been to church, have become valuable, prominent leaders in the local camp ministry, Bible camp ministry. I know of a couple who uh, stopped going to church regularly, not completely. And then with this pandemic, of course, they quit altogether. And uh, they, were, they saw a thing on the internet and thought they'd do it. They had some neighbors. They kind of knew, didn't know them very well. Uh, but but, but they, they took a section of their fence and he put a hinge on it and built it all up so that you unlatch the top and unlatch the bottom, and the fence flips up like this, and benches fall out on either side. And so their neighbors on that side and them on this side would sit on the benches seven feet apart. You know, it's a fence you can't see over. And, uh, and they, they'd do this about once or twice a week. And sometimes the neighbors would bring a uh, bottle of wine out, and they'd have it there on the, on the fence bar. And sometimes if it was cold, they'd have their jackets and, and coffee and and they really got to know one another. And, and they found out, to their surprise, that, that their neighbors had Bibles on their shelves and read them sometimes and prayed to God and believed that Jesus had died for their sins. They just never talked about it. They never found anyone to talk about it with. And then he noticed uh, across the back alley, there's another neighbor there that, that he knew was an atheist. And, uh, and the neighbor across the way who was an atheist knew that this couple were Christians, so they, they didn't really have anything to do with each other because he didn't want to talk to Christians. Uh, but, but the couple noticed that, that he was building something in the backyard, and it was a wheelchair ramp, and it didn't look very sturdy. And so knowing how to build, they went over and said, can we help you? So they helped build this wheelchair ramp. It turns out the, the grandfather had been recently... Uh, confined to a wheelchair and they wanted to build this ramp so he could come up and visit the grandkids and probably even live there so he could be with people instead of alone through, through this time. And uh, when, when the ramp was done and the grandfather came up into the house, uh, he said, well, who, 
who built this ramp? Obviously, he knew his son couldn't build something like that. And, uh, and I said, well, the neighbor across the way. And so he said, well, bring the guy over here so I can thank him. And, and so the couple goes over, and they, they talk and find out that the guy in the wheelchair is a Christian. And uh, you know why he hasn't been to church for years? It's really not that complicated. He just can't get on with the big mega churches that have wheelchair ramps. And none of the small churches had adequate, in the local area, had adequate facilities for a wheelchair to get into. So he stopped going to church. He didn't stop believing. He didn't stop praying. He didn't stop hoping for his son's salvation. And then the other neighbor, uh, when, when they moved in, they could smell, you know, the pot all the time. So you kind of think, well, do you really want to get to know those people? What's going on in that house? But they did. They got to know them. And the woman would share the struggles with her children. So one day they asked, could we pray for you? She says, absolutely. I pray for my kids all the time. Found out that she believed Jesus Christ. But she had this condition where where she couldn't even hold a hymnal because her hands would shake unless she'd smoke some pot just before going to church. And when she'd walk in the church smelling of that, everyone would look at her. So she just stopped. So they said to me, like this, exactly like this, this is our church standing on their back deck. Some of them are Christians, some of them aren't yet. We all have our struggles, but we help each other around the neighborhood. When we have the opportunity, we pray together, we read the Bible, and we fellowship. Is it possible in this world we live in for us to to broaden our horizons a bit? I don't I don't know. See, I've really struggled with the application, and I know I'm going on and on, but this is a big topic. In our church, we've changed our logo. Those of you who've been here know all about that. I think it's on the slide there, someone, the cross with the up, in, and out. Instead of measuring success by how many people are in the seats on Sunday morning, we've decided to measure success by, are you growing up in your relationship with God? Are you growing in the green arrow in your relationship with other believers? Are you growing out in terms of reaching those who don't know Jesus yet? See, that, that metric, that way of evaluating spiritual growth, of success in our endeavors together, doesn't require a building. It means that success can happen even if we remove the expectation from some of these people we know who don't come to church. Even if we completely remove the expectation that they would ever come to church. Can we fellowship? If you have people who you have a burden for, who aren't in church, but know the Lord, God is asking you to go to them and say, can we grow together? Can you help me see what I don't see? 
Can I grow from interaction with you? Can you grow from interaction with me? We don't have to put the expectations. How did, how did Eugene Peterson put it? If I can find those words again. I have been crucified in relation to the world, set free from the stifling atmosphere. Get that? I think he's got that right. The stifling atmosphere of pleasing others and fitting into the little patterns they dictate. We've been set free from that. Now, Paul never said that the Jewish Christians should stop being Jewish. He never said they should start eating pork. He never said they should stop observing the Sabbath. He never said they should stop worshiping in the temple and the synagogue. He never said that. He said, be, be as Jewish as you are. But don't require of the others that they become like you. Don't require that of them. The only thing that matters. That's a strong statement, isn't it? The only thing that matters is your faith expressing itself through love. So what can you add to that if it's the only thing? What can you possibly add to it without polluting it? The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. Now, I find, because of my Christian subculture upbringing, that what we do here in the church building on Sunday morning is one of the most valuable things for me to fulfill that reality. My faith expressing itself through love is built up and encouraged and made strong by this. And because you're here, I assume yours is too. But are there people we know that this just doesn't help them in that department? And do we reject them? Or do we say, good morning, my brother and my sister in Jesus Christ? And do we find ways to expand our vision for the kingdom so we can reach people for the Lord? See, that's why Paul was so upset. Because he knew that if the, the cultural shift was part of becoming Christian, the Gentiles would never make it. That's why Vinod did his research and is also, like Paul, so upset as an Indian person who wants to reach India for Christ. And he's wrote this book to try to get me and others to open our eyes and say, you can, you, can, you can have a red dot on your forehead and still be a devotee of Jesus Christ. You can worship in a way in an ashram that doesn't make any sense to me, but makes sense to them. And still be a follower of Jesus Christ, a brother and sister in the Lord. And because we live in a time when our culture is shifting... I think drastically. I could be wrong. We're in the middle. It's hard to see what you're in the middle of. I think the only churches that will survive are the ones that can open their eyes and see Jesus Christ where he is without requiring. I don't know what that means. I can't, I can't tell you the rules. All I can say is, can we go on that journey together?
Can we go on that journey together where we can expand our vision and see people for what they are instead of trying to force them to be what we are before we recognize their faith? I don't know what else to say, but uh, that's what God's speaking to me in Galatians. Sheila, would you close our service, please? Let's just bow our heads in prayer. Father, this morning we began the service just thinking about the reasons that might bring us here. And so we wanted them to be uh, the reasons that that we see in your word that Jesus wanted. He wanted us to, to pray and to worship, and we want to have hearts that do that. And we thank you for the words in Galatians this morning that warn us uh, not to add something to the gospel. I think we've all done that. I know I have, and I pray, Lord, that you would forgive that because that's not the true gospel. And, Lord, we know that... uh, when you speak to us, when we read your word, we, we might respond like Peter, say it isn't so. But Peter, he said that, and then he still, he did, he obeyed. He, he probably depended on you for help and guidance, and we know we can also. We just pray, Lord, that you would would speak to us through your word this week as we read Galatians And may we um, keep our eyes firmly on the foundation that uh, it is through faith in Jesus Christ that we are saved. And you ask us to love you and to love others. Help us to do that this week. Help us not to forget what we heard and and experienced here and then then walk away like it says in James. That we, we see in a mirror and then we just forget. We pray that we won't do that and we... We thank you for the encouragement of each other that will remind us, uh, that we might remind us each other in love to, to listen to your word and obey it. In Jesus' name, amen.